Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Parkinson's disease is a progressive nervous system disorder that affects movement. Signs and symptoms can be different for each patient. Although there is no cure, treatment options are available and with proper knowledge and determination, individuals can successfully manage Parkinson's disease. Today, my guest is John Lear, President and CEO of the Parkinson's Foundation. He will talk about causes, signs and symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and diagnosis and treatment options. He will also discuss how older adults with Parkinson's disease can maintain an active and positive lifestyle. So welcome, John, and thank you for joining me today. Uh, Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I did mention a little bit in my introduction about what Parkinson's disease is, but give us more details. What is it and what causes it? Sure. So um, Parkinson's is what we call a neurodegenerative uh, disease that affects predominantly the dopamine producing neurons in parts of the brain, uh, specifically a part of the brain that's called the substantia nigra. And so people with Parkinson's may experience a whole range of what we call motor symptoms, uh, like a tremor, mainly at rest, you know, in the hands, in the legs, in the feet, a fancy word called bradykinesia, which really just means slow movement, um, limb rigidity, um, walking or balance problems, um, as well as a whole range of what we call non-motor symptoms. So the cause is largely unknown although there are three types of causes that we refer to, but we don't know what specifically causes it. So it can be a combination of genetics, uh, environmental factors, and just simply the aging process. Um, Most people with Parkinson's, all individuals lose dopamine uh, neurons in their brain over time. And um, so, uh, you know, if we all live to a certain uh, age, you know, like 120 or 130, we would probably all develop Parkinson's because loss of dopamine neurons is just part of the natural aging process. But um, there are some people who will get uh, Parkinson's disease in their 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, That may be caused by genetics. We have recently noted that about uh, 15% of individuals with Parkinson's have a direct correlation to a genetic uh, cause. Um, And then the vast majority of people are unknown and some combination of genetics, environment, and the natural aging process. But what I'm hearing is, is that it does occur most often in older adults? That's correct. Yeah. So we've got some new data that's showing that maybe the age of Parkinson's is even even older than we originally thought. So there's some new developments there. But most people develop Parkinson's in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Only about 4% of people will, will develop what we call young onset Parkinson's disease. Um, that is uh, Parkinson's before the age of 50. And Is it men or women who are more likely to have Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so I was actually looking at data just yesterday from uh, Medicare claims data, which shows that uh, roughly about 60% of men uh, develop Parkinson's. So, you know, if you look at it in the breakdown, 60% of all people with Parkinson's are men and about 40% are women. And any particular racial or ethnic groups? Yeah. So again, what we're seeing from the data is that it is primarily a disease that affects white Americans um, and less so among Asians, uh, African-Americans and Hispanic. Um, you know, but that may be, you know, some related to some underdiagnosis in certain communities. 
Um, and even still, I think it's safe to say that it, it, it disproportionately affects people of, uh, uh, who are white. And you've been talking a bit about possible genetic causes and maybe some sort of physiological causes. Might there also be some lifestyle factors that uh, might be associated with Parkinson's disease? Yeah, we're not really seeing lifestyle factors. So, you know, again, it's it's the genetics. Uh, like I said, about 15% of people will have a genetic cause. There are two specific genes. Uh, I'll say their names, but they won't mean a lot to many people. One's called LERC2 and the other one's called GBA. Um, so those are the genetic factors. We do know that there are some environmental toxins, some pesticides and herbicides that have been implicated in a diagnosis of Parkinson's. But lifestyle, not necessarily. We, so we usually say it's genetics, some environmental factors, usually toxins, uh, and just a natural aging process. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about stress. I mean, we think about what we've all been going through for the last several years in connection with COVID and how much stress it's caused in our lifestyle and our personal lives. Has there been any research that might have a sense that there's an increase perhaps in Parkinson's disease due to stress? Oh, yeah. So I, I think, I mean, in terms of a diagnosis, um, I, I wouldn't say yes to that. But I would say that people with Parkinson's live with a great deal of stress. In fact, one of the biggest uh, things we've learned over the last 10 or 15 years, um, you know, we, we describe Parkinson's as a motor disorder, um, but it's so much more than just simply a motor disorder. You know, it's, it's so much more than just a resting tremor or gait problems or walking or balance or rigidity of movement. Um, it's what we, you know, Parkinson's has a lot of non-motor symptoms. That can be cognitive uh, issues. It can be mood issues. Um, it can be GI issues, sleep disorders, um, loss of senses. Uh, in fact, one of the early diagnostic factors for Parkinson's is that people will, will often lose their sense of smell, kind of like in COVID, right? So it's, uh, it's one of the first things, the first signs that people will see. So these non-motor symptoms, particularly the um, depression and anxiety uh, that, that come with Parkinson's are, are, are something that people deal with every day. And it's a big, it's a big part of the daily struggle. In fact, you know, because um, Parkinson's is related to the loss of dopamine in the brain, dopamine has a big effect on mood. It has an effect on motivation. Um, so losing dopamine, you know, really can lead people to, uh, it's, it's, it's part of the disease, not just a result of the disease. And so a lot of people will have depression and anxiety and stress as a result of having Parkinson's. And I was also wondering, since you had mentioned the, the relationship of, of genetics and uh, as a possible cause, if, say, an older adult is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, might it be likely that their children uh, or maybe even their grandchildren might be at risk of, of getting the disease? Yeah, so this is what I would say is is new territory in the Parkinson's world. Maybe 20 years ago, we didn't think that there was any genetic link. And then we found that there was a family of uh, Italian origin that had had a broad diaspora across the world. And that that family, because of the genetics, had a very high uh, prevalence of of Parkinson's disease. And then we worked back to understand that better. And then that led to a much different understanding of the causes of Parkinson's with, you know, upwards of 15% of the population having a genetic cause. So if your father or your grandmother or your aunt or uncle had it, um, it there may be an increased percentage or increased likelihood that you may have it. And one of the interesting things that we've been doing over at the Parkinson's Foundation over the last few years is uh, what we call our PD generation study. Uh, that's PD, Parkinson's disease and generation, where we are testing people as part of a clinical trial to determine whether they have a genetic cause of Parkinson's. So this is only for people who already have been diagnosed with Parkinson's to determine whether there's a genetic factor. And like I said, we're, we're seeing about 15% of those individuals uh, who are getting tested, which is higher than we initially thought or, or earlier estimates of it, um, have a genetic cause. So it's likely that their child might have similar genetics. It doesn't mean necessarily that they will ultimately develop Parkinson's. There seems to be a complex array of factors involved in, in leading to Parkinson's disease. To that point, I was just wondering then, so if, uh, again, an adult child or a, a grandchild 
would they be encouraged to be tested? Yeah. So as, so as part of our clinical trial, like I said, <clears throat> we're only testing people who have uh, the disease. We do have a companion uh, product with uh, the the uh, the tester, the the company we work with in in testing people who have the disease and are part of the clinical trial. Um, it is available. You can get testing, but I would say anybody interested in getting tested should do so in consultation with their physician uh, and make sure that they understand the implications of a uh, of a test. You know, you may get a result that you have LERC two or you have GBA or. Uh, one of the other five uh, genetic mutations that we're testing, it does not mean necessarily that you're going to develop Parkinson's. So it's very important for people if they're going to do the independent outside of our clinical trial study test that they understand that they talk with their doctor. They may even want to talk with a genetic counselor to understand it better. Okay, good advice. Well, I wanted to get back to what you were talking about in connection with signs of Parkinson's disease. Sure. Some of those things that you were talking about, some of those signs could be the same thing as just getting older and normal yeah. signs of aging. So how do you differentiate between the early signs of Parkinson's disease versus signs of normal aging? Yeah, so it's a great question. The best way to do that is go see your see your physician, right? And uh, he or she will likely, uh, if they suspect that you may have some of the symptoms of Parkinson's, they will likely refer you to a specialist that is a neurologist. Um, sometimes it's a general neurologist, or sometimes it's somebody with additional training in movement disorders, uh, somebody we would call a movement disorder specialist. And it really is incumbent upon those clinicians to make the final diagnosis. There's no drug or test you can take. Like we said, you can um, you can do a genetic study, but it may not determine that you have Parkinson's. It may just say that there's an indication or genetic indication that you do. But it's really important to get um, a diagnosis from a well-trained clinician, a neurologist, or a movement disorder specialist to really say, yes, this is Parkinson's or no, it's not Parkinson's. It might be just a resting tremor that doesn't have anything to do with Parkinson's. Like, for example, not to talk about myself, but I have a movement disorder. I, I kick all night long, so it's it's a problem for me. But it doesn't mean I have Parkinson's. And a lot of people with Parkinson's kick and move all night long and have sleepless nights. Doesn't mean you have Parkinson's. And some of the other symptoms then that say could be mistaken for normal aging? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of times people, as we get older, you know, we're just rigid in our movements. We're slower in our movements. Um, you know, but that, again, doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you have Parkinson's. I mean, Parkinson's is really uh, a whole series of things. You know, there, there may be um, face masking, there may be resting tremor, there may be rigidity, there may be slowness of movement, balance issues, there may be some cognitive issues. Um, I mean, it's really incumbent upon a professional to look at the, the you know, broad array of symptoms that you may or may not have to, to determine whether it's Parkinson's or not. And so just so I understand it, the, the main way to diagnose or recognize Parkinson's disease are the movement symptoms. Yes, exactly. So it's typically it's typically by uh, motor uh, motor disorders. You're gonna a, a, a general neurologist will will do a whole series of tests with you when you come into the uh, come into his clinic or her clinic. Um, they'll run you through a series of tests. Uh, those are all really mostly focused on motor, though there are cognitive tests that we look at as well. Um, but they'll make an assessment based on your motor symptoms primarily. But what I'm hearing you say, though, is that there are also non-motor symptoms. That is absolutely correct. So a, a, a neurologist might say, have you noticed a change in your sense of smell? Um, have you had more sleeplessness? Um, do you find yourself uh, lethargic or lacking in motivation? Again, those are all signs and symptoms of Parkinson's disease, Le less motor-oriented and more focused on non-motor symptoms. And could those be even maybe more serious than the, the, the movement symptoms? You know, it's really interesting. I think when you talk to people who are living with Parkinson's disease, they will say, yes, the, the movement issues are really problematic for me. I wish I could move as I used to. But I think what most people really worry about when you ask them is, am I going to have loss of cognitive function? Am I going to become so depressed or stressed out that, you know, the joy of life, my quality of life suffers? Um, I, I really think it's it's the concern about 
cognitive function decline that really uh, is a, a huge concern to people with Parkinson's disease. And would you say that, and again, we certainly probably have a very broad range, we were talking about symptoms and that, do the symptoms themselves worsen over time or is it more that there's additional symptoms that occur? How, how does this differ? Yeah, so, um, so you may start out with just simply a resting tremor. And you may have that resting tremor for, you know, a period of months, a period of years. And, you know, for some people, it may not get worse than that. I mean, that's the interesting thing about Parkinson's. We say this all the time. It sounds like a cliche, but it's true. No two individuals have the same course of disease. So some people may have very mild symptoms that, you know, persist for years. Um, Some people may have very, you know, severe symptoms, uh, rapid sort of onset of a whole series of, uh, of symptoms. Um, you know, some people may never have any cognitive issues. Some people may have them right away. It's a very complex disease and, and very unique to the individuals who have them. Um, you know, it is a, what we call a progressive degenerative disease. That does mean that for most people, it will get worse over time. So you may start out with a resting tremor in, in your arm or your hand, and then you might find that you have a resting tremor in your legs and you're sort of moving in lots of different places. You may not have sleep disturbances initially, but you may start to have them later in life. Um, you may not have hallucinations, which is another issue that people, some people with Parkinson's deal with. You may not have those hallucinations early on, but they may start to occur later in your, in your, uh, in your life. So, um, but by and large, for most people, progressive and degenerative means that it's going to get worse over time. And are there any specific uh, factors within this human being, maybe gender or race or cultural background, that determines the progress or the, the severity of symptoms? Well, we know we know a, f- a few things. We know that people in the genetic space, that people who have uh, GBA, I talked about two specific mutations, that people with GBA, the GBA mutation, tend to have more cognitive deficits than people with LERC2. Uh, so that's one thing. And so in a way, um, knowing your genetic profile, whether you have GBA versus LERC2, has implications potentially clinically for whether you should undergo what we call deep brain stimulation or not. Um, so deep brain stimulation is a treatment where they, uh, you know, a neurosurgeon will put leads into your brain um, to, you know, sort of metal leads that go into your brain. And so it's brain surgery. Um, and then that can potentially correct um, movement issues for people who have Parkinson's disease. Um, people with LERC2 are better candidates than people with GBA uh, because of the cognitive involvement. The less cognitive involvement you have, the better off DBS is going to be for you. Well, what you were talking about is a good segue into the the tests or the scans that are used to diagnose. If if an older adult begins to have some of these symptoms mm-hmm. and they go to their physician, what can they expect? Yeah. Well, like I said, the you know there's a lot of different ways that a, a, a neurologist or movement disorder specialist or you know, a community-based physician will start to assess Parkinson's. They're gonna look for the resting tremor. They're gonna look for slowness of movement, rigidity of movement. Um, they may do some brain scans, but it's really a combination of diagnostic factors that um, uh, a, you know, a clinician is gonna look to determine whether or not you have Parkinson's. And then based on that, that diagnosis, they will very likely put you on what's called a dopamine replacement therapy. Um, because if you're, if you are diagnosed with, uh, with Parkinson's based on clinical observation, um, what, what the, the, uh, what the net effect of that is, is that you're rapidly or maybe not rapidly, but you're losing dopamine neurons in your brain. And so the way to restore movement, at least, you know, in part is by, uh, giving somebody dopamine replacement therapy. Um, the drug that most people take is called Cinemet. Um, and, uh, people will take this. Uh, to really uh, allow themselves to move in ways that they're they're not when they're not on the drug. And since you have been asked, uh, mentioning that it's a neurological disease, would it be advisable to to try to find a neurologist right from the start, or could you actually go to you say primary care physician first? Well, I you know I, I think if you have a, a really good relationship with the primary care physician, I would go to him or her first. Right, they know you. They've been treating you for years, you know, so I would always start with the person, you know, 
um, your, you know, whoever your primary healthcare uh, professional is, um, they'll do some initial diagnostics. And, and then if they believe that you look, it looks like you have some of the symptoms of Parkinson's, a referral to a general neurologist or a movement disorder specialist should usually follow. And then uh, it really becomes incumbent upon that specialist uh, to figure out your reg medical regimen, you know, when you should take dopamine replacement therapy, how often you should take it, you know, whether to start now, whether to start in the future. Really, I, it, it's, it's often best handled by general neurologists. What you were saying in terms of taking the, the dopamine, I was also wondering, oftentimes older adults are already on a, a lot of medications. Right. Can that be a problem in terms of polypharmacy? and? Yeah. So I would say um, getting your medication in with Parkinson's right is one of the biggest challenges in Parkinson's disease. Um, when to take it, how often to take it, making sure you take it, um, being compliant with your medication uh, is really important. Um, I'll talk about hospitalization in a minute because that's also uh, a key thing. But, you know, what foods to take it with, you know, it's... Um, it's often described that you should take your, your Cinemet without protein, you know, so you want to make sure that you get the greatest absorption of it in your body. Um, you know, we have an issue in the Parkinson's space where, you know, there's about 1 million Americans who have Parkinson's disease, and about a third of those individuals will go to a hospital uh, on an annual basis. Remember, this is largely a population that's older, so they're going to go to the hospital for Parkinson's related reasons, but not Parkinson's related reasons. They may go in for, you know, just to have a, a skin tag removed or whatever, whatever the reason is, they may be going into the hospital. Um, when people go into the hospital and they're over overnight or there for, you know, multiple days, um, and maybe when there's surgery involved, it's really important that they talk to the entire professional health, the healthcare professional team to let them know, first and foremost, I have Parkinson's disease. It is very important that I take my medications on time at the appointed hour. Um, we've uh, been working on this for a long time, but when medication protocols are uh, protocols are subverted or not attended to, when somebody goes into the hospital, lots of other things, bad things can happen, bad outcomes can happen. And uh, we've got data that shows that when people go into hospital, if things aren't attended to properly, they will often leave the hospital worse than they came into the hospital, and they will often be discharged to not home, but maybe to a nursing uh, care facility. That's not always because of poor medical management in the hospital system. I want to be clear about that. But um, things can go wrong if people are not adhering to their medical regimen. And it's really important that the healthcare staff in a hospital, which usually follows specific rules, that may not accommodate for Parkinson's, that they do accommodate for the drugs that people with Parkinson's need to take. It's really an important component of overall Parkinson's care. And is it likely that these medications that they're now taking in connection with Parkinson's, they'll be taking for the rest of their lives? Yes, yes. I mean, typically what happens is uh, somebody starts on a regimen of Cinemet, and uh, that dose gets increased gradually over time. They need to take more and more of the drug. It's, uh, unfortunately, it's not a drug that just is consistent, um, you know, that you just take it and everything gets, you know, fine. Again, it's a progressive degenerative disease. So you will often find yourself having to take more of the drug as, as you age. And is it likely that there'll be additional side effects of that medication? Yeah. So one, this is something that's, um, you know, people, when they hear about it, they go, oh, I get it now. But if you see somebody with Parkinson's and you know they have Parkinson's, you'll often see them maybe moving very dramatically. The, the, the thing that a lot of people notice about Michael J. Fox, who was di diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease, again, very rare. Only about 4% of people are diagnosed before the age of 50. But when you see Michael J. Fox, um, he's often moving kind of uh, you know back and forth and you can see it. That's actually a result of the drug that he's taking to add, replace dopamine to his body. And you can see when you take a lot of, of the drug, it can lead to this sort of, a, you know, these, these excessive movements. So that's called dyskinesia. Um, and so dyskinesias are not necessarily a symptom of Parkinson's. They are actually a result of the drug. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. And we're talking with John Lear who is the president and CEO of the Parkinson's Foundation. And we've had a very good discussion so far about 
signs and symptoms and causes, diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, but more to come. But just want all of you to know that you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are talking with John Lear, President and CEO of the Parkinson's Foundation. And John, we covered a lot in terms of symptoms on the first part of the interview, but I wanted to just verify with you, is there a certain set of symptoms that must be present in order to confirm the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease? And if so, what are those? Yeah, so a neurologist is going to look for more than just one symptom. So there really are two of the four main symptoms that must be present over a period of time uh, for a neurologist to say, yep, that's a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And as we were talking about it earlier, it's what we call shaking or resting tremor, um, slowness of movement, again, bradykinesia, which is the fancy word for slowness of movement, um, stiffness or rigidity in the arms, legs, or the trunk, or trouble having balance. So people falling and, you know, what we also often call posture instability. So two of those four main symptoms must be present for a neurologist to say, yeah, that looks like Parkinson's disease. And then once that diagnosis is made with the neurologist, is then the patient handed off to other medical health care providers, or is there a team that starts to to be involved in the care? Yeah, so the Parkinson's Foundation really believes in team-based care. And I'm gonna go into that a little bit more deeply about who should be part of that team. But if you go to see your primary care physician and he or she is diagnosed with with Parkinson's, we really do want you to go see a neurologist or what we call a movement disorder specialist. So what's the distinction between those two? So a neurologist is somebody who goes to medical school, then does extra training in neurology, A movement disorder specialist is somebody who goes to medical school, does extra training in neurology, and then does extra training in movement disorders, specifically like Parkinson's disease. So what we really want you to do is to go see a neurologist or somebody who has a movement disorder, or someone who's a movement disorder specialist. The challenge is that there are not a lot of movement disorder specialists. You know, there's maybe 700 of them in the United States. Um, there's considerably more general neurologists, but most, you know, most people in the United States with Parkinson's, about 60% are treated by either a general neurologist or a movement disorder specialist. But that means a lot of people are being seen by a primary care phys- physician or a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner. Now, those are great people and, and very much part an important part of the team. Um, but Parkinson's is a very specialized disease. And we do think and see that people who are treated by a neurologist or movement disorder specialists, generally speaking, have better outcomes. Um, so we want to encourage people to be treated by, by folks like that. The thing about Parkinson's that's changing is in the past, it was usually uh, relegated to neurologists or general practitioners, right? Um, but because we know so much more about the disease, including the non-motor symptoms, we actually want people with Parkinson's to have a holistic approach to their health care. Um, we mentioned depression and anxiety, which are parts of the uh, of the disease. So mental health uh, professionals are a key component of this. Because of all of the movement issues, um, we like to see rehab specialists involved as well, from a physical therapist to an occupational therapist. Um, Parkinson's also leads to like quietness in the voice or um, sometimes inability to you know speak clearly or openly. So speaking, speech and language professionals are also very important. You know, so many of the activities of daily living that we just do without thinking, for somebody with Parkinson's, they really become, you know, a daily struggle. 
So an occupational therapist can help you figure out how to button your shirt or put on your shoes and or maybe make suggestions about adaptive things that you can use that make your life a lot easier. A physical therapist may give you techniques for when you're walking down and you feel like you're not going to be able to take that next step, which is a problem often in Parkinson's, how to get over that. Sometimes singing to yourself, sometimes maybe even starting to you know, dance or go into some other you know, uh, mental way of thinking about it so that you can move. Um, there's lots of uh, what we call hacks or tricks that uh, allow people to get over some of these symptoms, but um, it, it really does require a full complement of healthcare professionals working with people with Parkinson's to uh, really help people understand all of those things that they can do to make their, make their life better on a daily basis. And once you have all of these uh, providers together and you're, I'm assuming, depending on the, the individual, you've got the care plan. Are there medical treatments then that are included as part of that, that their care plan? If so, what are those? Because as I understand it, there is not a cure. That's what you said earlier. So how, how does that work in terms of what the approach is? Yeah. So there's no standard treatment for PD. Um, most people will be put on what we call dopamine replacement therapy. Uh, sometimes it's known as carbidopa, levodopa. People will hear that. Um, sometimes there will be brain surgery, like we talked about with deep brain stimulation. Um, we, as you mentioned, there is no cure for Parkinson's disease. We're working very hard to understand the underlying biology and the causes of the disease. Um, there's many symptoms or systems involved in the body in Parkinson's. So, uh, you know, scientists are looking at really, should we focus on the brain? Should we focus on the gut biome? Is there some interplay between the two? Uh, is there some immunology issues involved in, in it? But while we work on that basic science, the best drug we have is dopamine replacement therapy. So that's going to be a crucial part of anybody's treatment. Um, and some people do choose to do deep brain stimulation, and that's very effective for some people in, in, in with Parkinson's disease. But that's always a choice, you know, in good consultation with your family, your care partner, your loved ones, and your physician about whether that makes sense. Um, I do want to touch base on something. I thought maybe you were going in this direction, but you know, I was talking about Parkinson's and how it's a whole body experience, right? And it can affect so many different symptoms of the body. And if you're just by yourself, it's a very challenging disease. That's why we really encourage people, you know, to have a care partner, whether that's a spouse, a daughter, a son, a loved one, a relative, a friend, um, because having a good qualified care partner who understands all the ins and outs of Parkinson's is really going to be important for long-term health and quality of life. Um, it's a very difficult disease. It's, it's socially isolating in and of itself. So it's very difficult disease to just live with by yourself. So we always encourage people to have a care partner. Um, that's easier for some people. They have a spouse, they may not have a spouse. For people who don't, we really do say, try to identify somebody who you can rely on and trust uh, who can be there for you in the, in the difficult days. And thank you for bringing that up because I was wondering, you've, you've obviously talked about the medical therapies. Are there non-medical therapies that even the care partner, the spouse, or the relative could also help the individual? Yes. So one of the biggest uh, breakthroughs, I would say, in Parkinson's care over the last two decades is the understanding of the importance of exercise in maintaining good health and quality of life. That seems obvious, right? But if you think about people with Parkinson's who have um, movement issues, um, and, and one of the biggest concerns for anybody with Parkinson's are falls, right? Because falls can have you know, any, anytime somebody falls, there's lots of issues that, uh, you know, follow from that. So, uh, and because people with Parkinson's have, you know, um, balance issues and gait issues, um, that used to be a concern that let's, you know, don't exercise because you may be putting yourself at greater risk. In fact, over the last decade plus, what we have found is that exercise is almost as important as dopamine replacement therapy and keeping people active and having a good and high quality of life. Um, so within the Parkinson's community, exercise is the thing we say for people to do all the time. And if they can do it with a partner or care partner, um, you know, it's even better because 
one, you know, there's the social aspect of it. Two, um, there's a safety aspect. If you're walking and you fall and you're on your own, that's a much different proposition than if you're walking with your care partner who can either help balance you or steady you, or if there is a fall, uh, can quickly make all the calls that need to be made to, you know, get you back to safety. Exercise is just incredibly important. And so what we say to people is when you're diagnosed with Parkinson's, get exercising immediately. And people will say, well, what's the best exercise to do? And we say, anything that you do that ex- you know, that gets you out exercising is great, right? If you can get a little out of breath when you're exercising, even better. There seems to be some neuroprotective benefit um, from getting a little bit out of breath. So we always say to people, you know, if you're walking slowly, see if you can walk a little faster and just get a little out of breath. Always being safe and being mindful of safety. That's really the, the key thing. And, and don't fall because we don't want anybody to fall. But exercise has just become so important. The other thing about exercise, and you'll hear a lot of people who will participate in boxing. Um, you know, why boxing? Well, it's a great, it, this is non-contact boxing. It's like people punching a bag or punching gloves. Um, what we have found is that, first of all, it's great exercise. It gets people out of breath. It helps with, um, it helps with posture and balance. Um, and then the other thing it does is most people don't, you know, boxing isn't a natural thing and it's uh, for most people. And there's a pattern to boxing, which is great for getting people's brains using different parts of their brains, right? So brain circuitry is a huge part. There are circuitries in the brain that are natural. When those get interrupted, you need to retrain your brain to think differently. So doing any activity that you've never done before, whether it's playing an instrument, whether it's boxing, whether it's, you know, needle pointing, whatever it is that retrains your brain to use parts of it that it hasn't used before is is really important. And we see that a lot in exercise as well. And would you say that these physical exercises that you're describing or some of these, uh, the medical therapies, does that actually delay the disease process? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, Does it delay the disease process? You know, I think that's a somewhat of a hotly debated topic in the Parkinson's world. Uh, again, the, one of the hallmarks of Parkinson's disease is that it is a progressive degenerative disease. It's not going to go backwards, right? You're not going to suddenly be better. But you can slow down some of the symptoms, the, you know, the, rap- the rapidity of the symptoms getting worse uh, through exercise. And I think we've got some good evidence to show that that's the case. You had mentioned earlier in the interview about a movement disorder specialist. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about that. What what might be the role of this uh, practitioner should someone who's diagnosed with Parkinson's disease seek that type of specialist? Yeah. So, you know, in a perfect world, I would love for every person with Parkinson's to go see a movement disorder specialist. As I said, these are, these are physicians who've gone to medical school. They've done additional training in neurology and they've done additional training in movement disorders. And Parkinson's is probably the most well-known among the movement disorders, but there are a lot of different types of movement disorders. Um, And so um, movement disorders specialize not only in Parkinson's, but in a range of other diseases. Those are, these folks tend to see a lot of people, right? You know, so the, the more volume that you have in a disease, the better you're going to probably get in treating and caring for people with that disease. So movement disorder specialists really are, are those special people who can help people with Parkinson's, you know, with the different, um, not only medical regimen, but also the different ways, the life hacks that make life better. They just have a lot of experience and knowledge around that. As I said earlier, the challenge is we just don't have enough of them in the United States. You know, there's uh, and there are a lot more in the United States than anywhere else, but there's just not enough of them. And so if you're trying to get an appointment with a movement disorder specialist, you might be frustrated because they're hard to access. Um, So that's why we really say, look, look for a community based general neurologist. Um, If you can get access to a a movement disorder specialist, that's terrific. But don't be frustrated if you can't, because, you know, a a general neurologist who has a high volume of Parkinson's patients is going to become pretty expert in caring for people with Parkinson's disease. You also mentioned earlier about sometimes the voice is affected by, and I was wondering, can a speech pathologist uh, help a, a person who's diagnosed with Parkinson's disease? 
Absolutely. So, you know, we call these the, you know, roughly we call the broadly, we call these the therapies. So there's physical therapy, which, which helps with gross motor. There's occupational therapists who help with fine motor. There's mental health uh, professionals who help you, you know, with stress, anxiety, depression. And then there are speech and language pathologists who specialize in helping you communicate uh, in ways that you may, you may need adaptive ad adaptations with Parkinson's and how you communicate. Um, you know, for people who are in the later stages of Parkinson's, their voices become very soft and, you know, and it can be frustrating for them. It can be fr frustrating for the people who are their care partners and their family members to hear them. Um, some people with, um, uh, with Parkinson's disease and, and who will get treatment from deep brain stimulation will find they, they now have a stutter that they didn't have. I mean, they get the benefits of better movement but now they've got a little bit of a stutter. And again, speech and language pathologists are the, are the professionals that are gonna help you project your voice better. Um, they're gonna help with issues like stuttering and how to, uh, you, know, you know, things that you can do to ameliorate or minimize your stuttering. So they're a very important part of the clinical care team. And I'm glad that you mentioned about the, the occupational therapy and the physical therapy. As I understand it, there are certain exercises that are very specific then for people with Parkinson's disease. Is it important if you're going to find an occupational therapist or physical therapist to make sure that they specialize in them? Yeah, again, I would, if you're going to see your general neurologist and he or she is making a recommendation for you to see a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, um, make sure that th those individuals have lots of expertise in caring for people with Parkinson's. We said at the top of the call that um, no two people have the same course of disease. No two people need the same two, you know, the same, you know, everybody needs therapies tailored to them, you know, their body type, their size, their, their symptoms. Um, and so going to somebody who's, uh, who's got a lot of experience working with people with Parkinson's is really important. The good news in the internet age is you can ferret that out pretty quickly. One of the easiest ways to do it is by calling our helpline, 800-4PD-INFO. That's 800-4PD-INFO. We have a whole series of uh, healthcare professionals who answer calls. This is free during business hours in the United States. And if you've got a question, like I live in Topeka, Kansas, I need to see somebody, do you have a recommendation? They will find somebody for you, whether it's on that call or, or from a callback, but they will do whatever they can to get you to the best healthcare professional that they can possibly find. And you mentioned a little bit ago also about helping to deal with the mental anguish of the disease. Sure. What kind of therapists might be available to do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes when you need medication, as we talked about, some people with Parkinson's um, suffer from hallucinations. So that's often best treated by a psychiatrist, somebody who can prescribe medication for you. But talk therapy is also very important. I mean, so there's, there's, there are medications that help with depression and anxiety and hallucinations. Those are typically um, prescribed by psychiatrists. But there are many different uh, professionals like mental health uh, psychologists, uh, you know, uh, social workers, clinical nurse practitioners who care for do things in the mental health field. So, you know, whether it's medications or talk therapy or a combination of those, um, there's lots of different healthcare professionals out there. Again, the challenge we have in the United States is there are not that many psychiatrists out there. A lot of them are concentrated on the coast. So for people who are living in the interior, accessing psychiatric care is, is some, sometimes challenging. Um, but don't be daunted by that. You know, a, a good mental health care practitioner, uh, whether he or she is a psychiatrist or not, can help you uh, get the treatment that you need and, and you know, uh, work with a community of other providers to make that happen. One thing I also wanted to, you had mentioned a little bit earlier about the assistance that care partners and family members can provide in connection with exercise. Are there also the possibility of support groups for both people with Parkinson's disease as well as their family members or care partners? Yeah, so the support groups and the support group network around the country is a critical aspect of Parkinson's. It's a very tough disease to navigate on your own. Um, so finding a support group that works for you is, is really important. And we will often hear from people saying, you know, I, when I first got the diagnosis, I kind of lived with it by myself for a really long time. And then I found the Parkinson's Foundation, and then I found a support group, and then I found a, a physician or a, a medical team that could take care of, 
of me in a, in a, in a good way. And suddenly things got better. Still a progressive and degenerative disease, but you have so many more tools. Support groups are really critical. What we hear a lot of times uh, about people from support groups is if you're a young person with young onset, you know, you, you probably will want to find people who are at the same level as you. Um, sometimes people will go to a support group and, um, and I, I, this is just the reality, sad reality of the situation. They'll see people who are maybe in later stages and, uh, you know, they may be more debilitated than, than, uh, than the person going to that support group. It can be very, um, it can be very depressing or sad for them to see that because they, they sometimes think, oh, that's how I'm going to end up or that's, that's my fate. Um, it's not always the case. And so I think finding support groups that are really effective for you um, is really important. We hear that over and over and over again from people living with Parkinson's disease. And if people are interested in looking for support groups, can the Parkinson's Foundation provide that information on their website? Yeah, so we have resources on our website for that. Um, I would also encourage people. So our website is parkinson.org. Uh, there, uh, there are resources about support groups. There are resources for every aspect of the disease that you might want to know about. So I always encourage people start with our website. Um, you'll learn so much about the disease and treatment options. And, uh, and then if you want to talk to somebody live and really, you know, go into deeper detail, call our helpline 800-4PD-INFO. Um, as I said, we have nurses and social workers and clinicians of all types uh, who answer those calls. They've been our, our team of healthcare professionals on the helpline have been with us for years, in some cases, decades. So they have an enormous amount of information and resources to be able to impart. And they'll talk to you for as long as you want to talk to, uh, to them. You know, they're just terrific. And they can direct you to lots of places in the Parkinson's world for the things that you're looking for. It's not a very happy question, but I am curious, how long can a person live with Parkinson's disease? And then what do individuals with Parkinson's disease usually die from? So the first question, how long can you live? It really depends on you, right? Uh, like we said, no two people are the same. If you have young onset, like Michael J. Fox was diagnosed when he was, I think, 29 years old, and he's uh, in his late 50s, I believe now. So um, people can live for decades with the disease. Some people will have very rapid onset of, of symptoms and may not live for very long. That's just the, the sad reality of the disease. But um, with good medical management, good exercise, um, a, you know, a good support, you know, big support uh, network behind you, um, you can still live well and have a good quality of life with Parkinson's disease. Um, but the, 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 um, the length of life post-diagnosis is highly variable. Um, and again, most people should remember this is a disease that affects people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, you know, so uh, it's, it's not a disease that disproportionately affects young people, just the reverse. Um, but again, we have good evidence that young onset folks are going to live for a long time. And then it's interesting, if you look at uh, it, uh, when somebody passes away from Parkinson's, it's usually not listed in the death certificate, unfortunately talking about this, um, as died from Parkinson's. It's usually something like aspiration pneumonia. So people may end up not being able to breathe and they're sleeping and they get aspiration pneumonia. That, that is often a, a diagnosis, a common diagnosis for people with Parkinson's disease. And is there any way that Parkinson's disease can be prevented? So prevented, no. Um, we are, we're working to slow its progression. Uh, we're looking for a cure ultimately. Um, there are things, well, I, I shouldn't say that. There are some things. Stay away from toxins, <laughs> you know, and uh, there are some, you know, like uh, Paraquat is a toxin that uh, has been implicated in the diagnosis of, of Parkinson's. So um, if you're in the agricultural world, be mindful of the pesticides and the herbicides that you're using. If you live in a rural, uh, rural area, um, that's a particular issue. Um, so you can, you can prevent it by avoiding environmental toxins. Uh, for the vast majority of people, you know, the, the, the cause of Parkinson's is either a combination of genetics, environmental triggers, and just the natural aging process. So, um, and we all lose dopamine neurons in our brain over time. So there's really no way to stop the loss of dopamine neurons in our brain. Well, we're just about out of time. So 
just wanted to have you reiterate any good resources that people should uh, look for more information. Sure. So um, please, if you're interested or curious or concerned about a diagnosis of Parkinson's or you just are curious about Parkinson's in general, visit our website, parkinson.org. That's parkinson.org or call our helpline 800 for PD info, uh, 800 for PD info. Um, we have people on the line during normal working hours in the United States. You can call from all over the world. Um, we are well, we welcome calls from anywhere from anybody who's, who wants to talk about or learn more about Parkinson's disease. All right. Well, I want to thank John Lear, president and CEO of the Parkinson's foundation for joining me today. And If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is www.agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio shows, as well as the TV episodes, in addition to the Aging Matters podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify. In addition, Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. To learn more about this company, you can visit inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Bye.